0: the giant hole in the middle of sparta in 300 which was there for no reason other than to have a place to push stereotypical middle eastern extras it's the ign Digiga! please welcome two men who would gladly sucker punch Zack snyder wade major and mark kaiser
1: wow that was a, a mouthy lengthy opening uh cory who sent that one in
0: that little bit of magic was brought to you by Alexander the Burly Man Berlika.
1: Yeah, two in, two weeks in a row for Alexander, but it, it's a good one. And uh, that music, of course, uh, Mark. What was that intro music?
2: That was from the Birds. No, it isn't. That was from Psycho. No, it wasn't. That was from North by Northwest. No, it wasn't. That was from uh, <laughs> Frenzy. <laughs> Torn <It's Cold laughs> Curtain. The man to knew too much. Vertigo. Vertigo.
1: Uh, it was our vertiginous opening, which of course means something it be and something awesome and you now
2: must go and save your pennies and buy pretty
1: bitching, Uh and we'll get to that momentarily. Meanwhile, uh in in continuing this just twisted new tradition that we have, what the hell is this
2: and why do I have to eat it? Wait, you ge- wait, hang on, stop. What? There there is a name for it. Okay. Don't eat it yet, hang on. We were not going to do this by the way on the show, but Wade just picked it up. It's not my fault. <laughs> Don't email me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, well, Mark is doing something uh, We got a lot of good stuff We, uh, of course, had our big Halloween show last week And um, we have some late-coming stuff That uh, if uh, there's still time for anybody to listen to this show before Halloween We're going to make mention of. We got some music, got television, got new movies, got older movies uh, Got uh, great British television it's, uh, It is a sprawling, sprawling week That and is and
2: an, an Alpha Jorès.
1: An Alpha what's An Alpha
2: Jorès is an Argentinian cookie which, uh, I have to say, I made an Alfa and then uh, they're two shortbread cookies with some dulce de leche in the middle. Now, I made these. Ki- wait, wait. Before you take a bite out of it. Okay, yeah, and yeah. And then we can move on. Yeah. People hate when we do this okay. now. Um, I don't like this cookie. Okay. So, I'm perfect. Not that it didn't come out well, but I don't think I like these types of cookies. But if you like it, I'll, g- I'll give you 10 of them if you like it. There's whatever. I mean, if they like them in Argentina. man, yeah, whatever. Right. It's kind of like, yeah, whatever, right?
1: Mm-hmm. It's okay. a
2: it's 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 uh, two shortbread cookies, soft, yeah. with some Dolce de Leche, which, by the way, I made. Thank you very much. Oh, did you really? Yes, I did. That's very nice. In the middle. So, uh, okay. So, uh, I can tell, scale of one to ten, you're looking like a five or a six, right? Five. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's fine. Got yeah, it. Yeah, that's not great. Got it. Not I,
2: great. I will not be making these alfajores again. Yeah. I'm sure in Argentina, it's probably like the national cookie. Yeah, whatever. But it's like kind of whatever.
1: Yeah, Evita and all that crap. Who needs you? Exactly. Okay. Um, Mark, it is, uh, it's It's getting to be holiday season, and everybody's starting to blitz this stuff out. We're going to talk about this amazing Alfred Hitchcock uh, Masterpiece Collection in just a moment on Blu-ray. But um, we do have some uh, some titles that are still – excuse me as I get this Dolce de Leche out from in between my teeth – uh, we got some music stuff to talk about, and a few titles that are still uh, Halloween-worthy, while we still have a few days before. Of course, we did most of our Halloween coverage last week, but uh, a few of these that uh, trickled in since, worth talking about. One is a Korean film called Bedeviled, and uh, i, I got to tell you, anything that has a picture of a, a blood-covered woman with storm clouds behind her holding some kind of a sickle in her hand, um, I'm all over it. Uh, And the Koreans make some pretty twisted stuff, by the way. This was uh, directed by Fine Cut. And Fine Cut, I I, I don't know anything about. I assume they're one of those uh, directing collectives. I uh, tried to look a little bit into this. This made the rounds of the festivals. But um, this takes place primarily on an island. And uh, it is... Let's just say it's a little bit like a Korean version of of I Spit on Your Grave. Done better. And... uh, you know but ultimately thematically pretty much the same kind of a thing and uh, the acting's better so if if you know you want to see one of those really twisted korean films it goes uh, that goes there that's one got another one here called uh, 247 degrees fahrenheit that's 247 the little degree symbol and then f none of it is spelled out 247 degrees fahrenheit and um this also is kind of a throwback uh this is, a little, this is basically one of those, you know, a, a bunch of kids in a cabin movie. You know what happens there. They go to the cabin. They, uh, you know, think they're going to have a good time, and then uh, something goes wrong, and they're trapped inside, and, it, it, you know, suddenly the, the sauna that they're in when they go inside, it, the heat is just going up and up and up and up. I guess you could say this kind of mixes um, elements from um, Saw with uh, Friday the 13th. So that's 247 degrees Fahrenheit. Not, you know, for a low-budget thing. Pretty well done. Wrong Turn 5, Bloodlines. This is the all-rated, unrated Blu-ray and DVD combo. And uh, I got to tell you, Mark, the Wrong Turn series, I had no idea that it would take the turn that it did in Wrong Turn 5.
2: Every turn in the Wrong Turn series is a Wrong Turn.
1: But in this movie, did you know that Wrong Turn 5 is actually a musical comedy? Did you know that?
2: I did not. not Singing,
1: dancing, romance, there's no horror in it.
2: In America, it's called Glee. Yeah.
1: Anyway, uh, this is just silly. Where well, I'm from, we call
2: it maze. This is just silly. <laughs> you uh,
1: that? Yeah, it, this is just silly. It's uh, basically this is this is getting into uh, the hills have eyes and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and all the anything anything that involves hillbilly cannibals. That's the that's where this one goes. And uh, you know it's just like all the rest of them who needs it uh, but I guess they are big fans, otherwise there wouldn't have been five of these damn things. Then we have a three uh, d blu ray combo pack with uh three d blu ray blu -ray and dVD of bait three d clean up on aisle seven that's literally the uh the the the, t- the, the subtitle here clean up on aisle seven um just honestly, so silly. Uh, Bait three D is uh, you know we're still we're still doing uh, shark and piranha movies. Uh, all these decades after Jaws, it just kind of blows my mind. Uh, the 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 angle here, if you wonder what the clean up on aisle seven bit is about, this is truly as stupid uh, a, a concept as I think I have ever seen in a movie. And yet somehow they kind of sort of sell it. And so I, I really do give them props for taking a premise that has no business working in what, any way whatsoever and making it work just so they can have an excuse for some 3D shock effects. Mark, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read just... I, can't, I could not possibly summarize this better than what they have summarized themselves. Tell me what you think of this. When a monstrous freak tsunami hits a sleepy beach community, a group of survivors from different walks of life find themselves trapped inside a submerged grocery store.
2: I as, only shop at submerged grocery stores. As if, they try if, to if you're an above if if you're an above water grocery store, I'm not interested.
1: As they try to escape, <laughs> they soon discover there is a predator among them more deadly than the threat of drowning. Vicious great white sharks lurking in the water.
2: That's awesome.
1: Uh, my question is why wouldn't the, the sharks then if they're in the grocery store, why wouldn't they just go straight for the uh, you know the prime rib? I have no idea. It's already cut, it's been trimmed. Little layer of fat, right? You know, it's it's prime cut
2: because because the sharks are attracted to blood. Yeah, I guess that's why. Yeah, there you go. Fresh human I, I, I blood comes up with this stuff. Well, look, obviously they know it's stupid. If it's if if the tagline is "Clean Up on aisle seven, they know it's ridiculous. Oh my gosh, it's just it's like it's like a uh, like, uh, piranha. It's piranha 3D. silly.
1: It's utterly silly. Okay, and then we got a thing here called Lovely Molly, which they tout as being from the makers of the Blair Witch Project and the Lord of the Rings. Um, boy, that's a stretch. And the Lord of it. the Rings. I guess some, some real like
2: some gaffer on Lord of the Rings. Well,
1: El- Eduardo Sanchez, who who wrote and directed this, is of course one of the uh, the Blair Witch guys. The, the Lord of the Rings thing is is you know that's a stretch. That's a a, 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 prudu- a prudu- producorial stretch. But uh, this is you know kind of going in the same direction, a little bit as the uh, Blair Witch stuff. Um, I, it's you know it's it's a haunted house movie of a sort. Um, not the best haunted house movie i've ever seen certainly not the worst um stylishly done um but you know yeah you could you could do worse i guess you know, we, come on. No, Rosemary's, that's a blur. Rosemary's you Baby. You could do worse. <laughs> you could do worse, I guess. That's a good blur. And then the last one, which kind of uh, did a little bit of business around the world, I guess uh, Chernobyl Diaries experienced the fallout. Uh, Chernobyl Diaries is here on a combo pack Blu ray and DVD and ultraviolet, which also includes the alternate ending, which uh, makes no difference whatsoever. But what I do like, I like the way that they use the radioactive symbol and kind of make it look like a, like a spooky face in the clouds. That's That's, good artwork. That's good. That's good artwork. That's good salesmanship there. Uh, Yeah, Chernobyl Diaries is basically, uh, you know, it's a little bit like the uh, the, the mutant hillbilly concept, but... They kind of put a modern spin on it. They want it to be a little bit like uh, like some of these found footage movies to have a little bit of the same feel all the way from I, Blair Witch, all the way up through Wreck, and and I uh,
2: those found mo- who- who-
1: Paranormal Activity. I
2: wish, I wish those found footage movies would get lost.
1: I yeah, I do too. But I think but, we're over but ultimately, you know, it uh, it it does have a little bit of a Paranormal Activity feel to it, and the idea that you know the Chernobyl uh, accident created something horrible. Look, I was in Europe when that thing happened, and they were finding irradiated fruit within, you know, 150 miles of where I was living. So it's, it's kind of creepy, you know. You start to think maybe the zombies are next. First, it's like a, a tangerine that will, uh, you know, make you break out in a rash. Next thing you know, a zombie's chewing on your arm. It's just, a, it's just a small walk.
2: Awesome. Totally awesome. It's a small walk. All right, so what am I doing? Am I talking about this uh, music yeah, stuff? Yeah, do the
1: music. So do the music. Let's knock the music out.
2: Uh, Wade, um, and I'll, I'll
1: chew on this bad cookie while you're talking about music. It is bad,
2: right? Is it bad? Is it's it bad, not, bad, or is it just like it just like nothing, right? Yeah, it's, it kind it's of tastes just, like nothing. It kind of, it's sort of like I don't know. It's Isn't like, Argentinian food supposed to be like spicy and fun? And I don't know, rock man. I don't know. They
1: got gauchos down there. I don't even know what a gaucho is. I?
2: Do I. All right. All right. Uh, on the music front, we got we actually have a couple of good Blu-rays this week. Uh, in 1986, one of my favorite albums, and actually it's since become a classic, is Peter Gabriel's "So." And uh, this was the album that spawned hits like a Sledgehammer, which was a big uh, big one. Red Rain, very dramatic. I love that album, uh, Peter Gabriel. Here we have, as part of the Classic Albums series, we have So, the definitive authorized story of the album. And they talked to a lot of people involved, pretty much uh, Gabriel himself and the co-producer, Daniel Lenoir, the engineer, some of the musicians. What year did you say that was? 86. That's the year, that's the year of Chernobyl. <laughs> it's all coming together. Yep. Um, this is a great album And this is a ter- it's a terrific documentary If you love that album as I do If you don't love the album You will not care about this documentary But um, what everyone loves about So Is less the music Which of course is great And one of the best rock albums of the era But the video for Sledgehammer Now at the time Back when MTV used to show videos uh, Sledgehammer was an amazing video One of the best of that year Directed by um, the Armin guys Ladies and gentlemen. Bet you very nice. Very nice. Uh, so that's fun times. All right. What else do we have? We also have uh, Neil Young Journeys. Now, I'm a big fan of this film, Neil Young Journeys. Jonathan Demi has done a couple of these Neil Young films. D- uh, Demi and Young have become kind of, if not friends, probably friends, but definitely at least collaborators. And this one is... Is Bruce Springsteen uh, jealous? Springsteen hasn't really done any big, you know...
1: But isn't he supposed to be Neil Young's pal, or is that Jimmy Fallon? Huh? Is Neil Young being print uh, never mind
2: what who C- are you
1: carry on jesus christ
2: why does wade even show up okay uh, anyway so this one is sort of the uh it's the most stripped down of the lot of jonathan demi neil young collaborations and this one neil young literally gets into his crown in victoria and drives from his hometown in ontario canada to uh toronto's massey hall and plays a concert and it's great i actually saw this thing projected and when it was projected you can't necessarily tell from here. What it was projected? It was projected in this really funky new audio format that just made the guitars just wail in your ear. It was really awesome. Um, loved it. love seeing it projected here on the DVD. It's you don't really get that kind of a kind of a feeling, but it's still a very good documentary. Again, if you love Neil Young, you will love Neil Young Journeys. Really good stuff. Uh, the Doors live at the Bowl, 1968. You know, Wade. Um, a few days ago, Bob Dylan played at the Bowl. Did he really? Yeah. Bob no Dylan was just at the ball. Bob Dylan was at the Bowl? You didn't realize that? No kidding. No, He's know. only played the Bowl like three times. He played once like in 1960-something, and he played it once a couple years ago, and he was literally at the Bowl, again, the Hollywood Bowl, a few days ago. Very exciting. Wow. Anyway, 1968, uh, The Doors played the Bowl, and um, it's great. It's great stuff. This is not high-definition stuff, obviously. The audio is uh, generally very good, but not like super pure, incredible, lossless stuff. But you get all the big songs here. You get, uh, you know... Uh, Get them all. Backdoor Man and... Uh, Ooh, you know. Backdoor Man. What's wrong with you? Uh, he's the, he's, Fire, a, new, he's huh? a new
1: superhero, isn't he? Backdoor Man. That's the new franchise from uh, yes, Warner he, Brothers. Yes, Christopher Nolan's going to go do Backdoor yes, Man. Yes,
2: he's, it's a new porn superhero <laughs> called Backdoor Man. Anyway, uh, it's been remastered, so it does look great. And it does sound great. But again, you're, there, there are certain limitations to the, the original source material. But if you do love The Doors, Live of the Ball 68 is good eating... Uh, Wade, now I'm not sure if you're a fan of uh, Pat Metheny. Pat Metheny is, he's still around. He is a, 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 this American, he's a jazz guitarist. Yes. And he's very experimental. He does a lot of fusion stuff, does a lot of world stuff. He's had a very, uh, you know, iconoclastic poly, he's, he's he's a musical polymath. Yes. And, and we had, have, huh?
1: And I was going to say, Metheny's like that minty stuff they put in cigarettes, right?
2: That is true. Don't know what you just said. Okay. Anyway, uh, Pat Metheny, The Orchestrian Project, sounds exactly like something that Pat Metheny would come out with. The Orchestrion Project, which is a, uh, you know what? It's a bunch of songs that were written many times improvised by Matheny and his band although Matheny pretty much plays every damn instrument in the world Mm. Um, anyway so it's all it's it's acoustic stuff, it's electric stuff, it's solo stuff it's full collaboration stuff it's really great, I mean Matheny is definitely he's an acquired taste but the guys won like 19 Grammys so it's good stuff Mm. if you're into jazz, if you're into jazz fusion, crossover jazz crazy jazz, uh, Pat Matheny is your man and a good place to start might be the Orchestrion Project, nice, good stuff Awesome. Can I blow my nose?
1: Go ahead. Blow your nose. I'm going to knock knock out a couple of TV things, and then we're going to get into our movies. Uh, Some old American TV. Oh, toot, toot, toot. That's how professional we are here. Uh, Perry Mason. This is Season 7, Volume 2. We talked about Season 7, Volume 1 not too long ago. This is the rest of that season. Uh, Not much else we can say here. Raymond Burr, pretty great. The original uh, great TV lawyer. He's very officious. He knows how to work a courtroom, and uh, pretty much every episode of Perry Mason is roughly just like every other episode. But you do get some uh, some good uh, guest spots here, and look—it's classic TV from the uh, the early nineteen sixties. It's this is what TV used to be. Um, more interesting, although not necessarily more enthralling, is a double uh, set here of Volume One and Volume Two from Season Five, of The Streets of San Francisco. Awesome. And yes, thank you. Finally, uh, Paramount is packaging their their. Volume 1's and Volume 2's together Because although, I think they realize that this is stupid But
2: Although, although you will notice One cast member who's not there
1: You know, this. I always forget this And, and I have a story to go along with this uh, We always forget that the Streets of San Francisco uh, San, Streets of San Francisco that, that cookie is screwing up my diction You did that on purpose Yes, I did That's uh, that screwing up my diction uh, The Streets of San Francisco in Season 5 <laughs> Lost Michael Douglas Michael Douglas decided, uh, "I'm too big for this." You, Carl Malden, you've won your Oscar. I got to go get mine. So he he drifted away to become a big uh, big movie star, and they replaced him with a guy who would go on to become one of the greatest viper pilots in the history of Battlestar Galactica. That would be none other than Richard Hatch. Yeah. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, Apollo from Battlestar Galactica, Richard Hatch. Uh, Richard Hatch also played uh, Jan or Dean. I forget which one in that. In the, the who, who, which he ever? played the Or. Whichever one uh, had the accident of Jan and Dean in the TV movie on the Jan and Dean story?
2: No, I, I have not seen the with, Jan and Dean TV. It's really story. good.
1: It's really good with with Bruce uh, uh, Bruce what's Pac his Leitner? name? No, no, the other Bruce the, Willis, the, the one from Longtime Companion. Bruce, Bruce uh, Davidson. Yeah, Bruce Davidson played the other one. He and uh, Richard Hatch played uh, Jan and Dean. It was great. Really, it's. I'm serious. Sounds it's very, really. really good...
2: boo. you really make it out to be fantastic. I can't wait to Netflix that one. <laughs>
1: anyway, so Richard Hatch replaced him, and it's okay. It's serviceable, but it's not. It's it, it, somehow it's not quite the same. You know, Michael Douglas just sort of nailed this, and Richard Hatch sort of walked on like some kind of a male model. Um, you know, I, uh, I I actually once sat in Richard Hatch's uh, apartment. Did you know that? Not so many years ago.
2: Uh, please tell us that story. Well, you?
1: the the the. Uh...
2: Uh, what? Okay, fine. No, no, there was. They, they
1: had a Galacticon uh, here in L. A. at the Universal uh, Sheraton. There was a, a convention of Battlestar Galactica stuff. It was a big, you know, the first big Galactica convention, Galacticon. They were trying to do a Star Trek thing with it, and uh, I actually went and took some friends of mine who were gigantic Battlestar Galactica lunatics, and uh, we saw a lot of you know short, fat Cylons walking around, very scary. Uh, and uh, in preparation for that, I wrote a piece on Richard Hatch, who was very involved there because he'd been trying to get the show relaunched. And, you know, he had actually put a lot of his own money into doing this trailer for what a feature film could look like if they did it on Battlestar Galactic. It's a very famous thing, it's not even on YouTube. You only see it if you ever go to conventions. And so I, I actually sat down in Richard Hatch's uh, apartment in, uh, in Studio City and had a lovely uh, sit-down with him. And he was writing a lot of these novels at the time, a lot of science fiction novels, kind of doing the, uh, the uh, William Shatner thing. Great guy. Ageless.
2: Was it in, in Richard Hatch's home, was there a secret hatch?
1: No, there wasn't. But there was a crap load of Battlestar Galactica memorabilia. I'll tell you that. He's, he's got to get
2: on. He's got to move on. Yeah. It's too late. Now, I could see, like, he, you know how uh, uh, Nichelle Nichols... Yeah. And Sulu and Chekhov, you know how they they will appear in Scotty yes. before he died. Yes, they will appear in Star Trek fan films. They have mm-hmm. appeared in Star Trek fan films. Yep, I understand how they can't get it together because you know they they were like the fourth, fifth, sixth bananas on the show. Yeah, but Richard Hatch was the star. Yes, of a hit. Well,
1: a couple of hit shows. I mean, look, let's yes. face it. I mean, yes, he replaced Michael Douglas, but he was still the star of you know the last yes. season so, of uh, San Francisco.
2: So why is he not? Why did he never get over Battlestar Galactica? Why could he never? Get beyond that in his career.
1: I don't know. Did anybody else on that show? Dirk Benedict went on to do the A team and then kind of evaporated.
2: How about the dog? Didn't Bowser Galactica have a dog?
1: Yeah, the Daggett, that would have been a midget inside the Daggett. Really? That's not really a dog.
2: Oh, doggy.
1: Yeah. Anyway, and then lastly on the TV front, the classic TV front, we have Volume Two of the Ernie Kovacs collection. Oh
2: yeah, this so is good, good stuff
1: from Shout Factory. Uh, you know, and this includes a, uh, a bonus disc as well. That is just this is sensational. You can, I mean, Ernie Kovacs is just one of the great legends in the history of the televised form. He is one of the most pivotal comic geniuses and innovators in history. And uh, I've said it before: you, you cannot watch late night comedy today. Especially things like Conan O'Brien. And certainly Jimmy Fallon does it more than anybody else. You cannot watch it without sort of seeing the incredible influence of Ernie Kovacs and this kind of weird, obscure, skewed way that he sort of helped evolve television comedy.
2: Well, the thing is that that, um, these guys like uh, O'Brien and uh, Fallon, uh, you know... They revered Ernie I know, Kovacs. I know. It's not just like a coincidence. They revered Ernie Kovacs.
1: Here's what you get eight episodes from the uh, morning show that Ernie Kovacs did back in the day, uh, 18 bonus sketches uh, with all kinds of crazy characters, three episodes of the uh, game show Take a Good Look, and a uh, TV pilot for a show called Medicine Man called A Pony for Chris. That uh, just happens to have uh, you know Ernie Kovacs and Buster Keaton in it, if you can believe that I mean that 's like the it 's just such a strange thing because i 'd never seen this, never heard of it. Is it that good, not really, but seeing those two guys in it is something surreal. You feel like you just walked through the looking glass into an alternate universe, and then uh, the Lively Artists, which has the only uh, solo interview ever filmed with uh, ernie Kovacs, and then there 's a thing from two thousand and eleven at the american Cinematheque. and um, you know the, uh, the this thing, Ernie Kovacs, take a good look, which is the uh, the bonus disc. Um, very very interesting. This is a uh, this is kind of like the unquiz show, and it's just um, it's just so interesting uh, because nothing has on television has ever been like it before or since. It's not at all like a like a, a regular game show. And even in this era when we've had these bizarre game shows like, you know, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and all the... You know, we, we recently had the era of the Uber game show, right? Uh... You know, who wants to be a millionaire and what's the one with the lady with the, the. Oh, Weakest Link? Weakest Link, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, we had that moment God, when there were these uber like primetime game shows. 20 years ago. I know. This is not even not even that. It's fascinating. So, anyway, uh, you definitely want to get this. Volume 2 of Ernie Kovacs is just great. absolutely he, terrific. And the
2: thing with him is that uh, he does the thing that they don't do anymore on TV, which is he was very experimental. He would ad lib a lot. So experimental. Very experimental. And some of the so which means that some of the stuff landed with a thud. Most of it was great because he was such a genius. But it's it's the type of comedy that they don't really practice on TV much anymore.
1: Very true. You
2: really have to go kind of. You really have to hit hit the stand up circuit. You do to get that kind of comedy. So Ernie Kovacs, he is revered by people you love, which means that uh, you should definitely check it out.
1: All right, here it is, Mark. We're going to talk we're, we're going to talk about the man.
2: Oh my god. The man, the master of suspense. It's so good. You must buy it now.
1: The, the master of suspense. You know, this is 2 weeks in a row. We've got a mega universal box set. Last week we talked about the Universal Monsters collection just in time for Halloween. This week we are talking about Alfred Hitchcock, the masterpiece collection. This is from Universal, but however, this is not just uh, Universal stuff. This includes all kinds of stuff that has been released by other companies as well. Um, again, we, we talked uh, a few weeks ago that Warner recently came out with uh, dial Lamp for Murder in a 3D version, as well as Strangers on a Train. Those are not included here, but those are out on Blu-ray now as well. But um, here's the first thing I'm going to say. I, I, I really wish Universal would stop doing this. This is the exact same kind of packaging that they did for the, for, did for the Monsters collection and for a few other things. F- where For the,
2: for, for the Kubrick uh, collection? The Kubrick,
1: yeah, the, with the pages, the yes. pages, the whole page thing, where they just kind of sit in these little sleeves and it, I don't like it You have to grab the disc with your fingers You get the finger grease on it You risk scarring it with the with the sleeve Yeah, it looks like nice packaging You're able to cram a lot of discs into a small box But I, I just don't like it I want, I want things on spindles I'm sorry, I want things on spindles
2: And but, I can't imagine that that's I can't imagine that that packaging is cheap to produce So it's not even like they're doing it to no, save money I would imagine
1: No, this is all custom This is crazy um, but anyway, this is – look, you got to own it because these are some of the greatest – not just the greatest Hitchcock films ever made. These are some of the greatest movies ever made. This is an unbelievable collection. Fifteen movies. I'll say again, fifteen movies. Every single one of those that was originally released in uh, the various box set editions, the special editions from Universal, which are, of course, we should point out, all of the films that were part of Hitchcock's own personal library. You know, Vertigo and Psycho and uh, – And Marnie and Torn Curtain and all of these things, which were restored, they were kept pristine, then they were kind of semi-restored back in the 80s and released as kind of a a roadshow tour. There was a roadshow tour of classic Hitchcock films at the time. All of those movies were since licensed by Universal, who kept them pristine and then put out on DVD. All of those films are here now as well, along with a bunch of others. So here are the 15 films that you get. Psycho, The Birds, Vertigo, Rear Window, North by Northwest, which, of course, was originally a Warner uh, release. Uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Marnie, Saboteur, Shadow of a Doubt, Rope, The Trouble with Harry, Torn Curtain, Topaz, Frenzy, and, of course, that great film with which Hitchcock decided to finally go out with a whimper, uh, the bizarrely, ridiculously, hysterically horrible family plot.
2: But it did have Bruce Dern. (laughs)
1: Yeah. a bad movie you know
2: if you look at uh, first of all it's a great it's the only bad
1: movie here frankly
2: that's true Uh, it's uh, a must buy set but there are you know Hitchcock films can be broken up sort of roughly and in a sense inaccurately in sort of his British stuff, and then when he came and, be, and be, became a Hollywood director. And
1: the Hollywood stuff starts with Rebecca, which is not really a Hitchcock film. It's more of a, a – I mean, it's a classic Hollywood thing. It's,
2: it's not a hired-hand film, but it's, it has less of the Hitchcock well, thing as other – it's like The Birds or Psycho. Yeah, or I mean, you
1: know. he, was, you know, he was working with uh, – um, Steve? No, Gone with the Wind producer. Uh, Selznick. Selznick at the time. And he and Selznick had a very rocky relationship because they did Rebecca, which is more of a Selznick film, and then they went on to do stuff like Notorious, which was more of a uh, Hitchcock film. And uh, now Rebecca's
2: a great... Look, it, it won the Oscar for Best Picture, so it's a great yeah, film. it's a great film. But I'm saying that there are... That these films are all the yeah. post... I hear you. Uh, po- his post-British years. Yes. And there are some films But his, golden, his
1: golden period is represented here.
2: But his here's, golden period. Okay, here's, although I'm saying... That the box set is a must-buy. Guaranteed yeah. must-buy. Yeah. Here's what's missing. Um, let's see what's missing. What's missing? Lifeboat?
1: Yes. What's missing. Right? Which is out. Which is out, by That's the way.
2: That's true. Um, Spellbound. Okay, whatever. Spellbound. Which is
1: another one of the Selznick films. Right. Notorious and Spellbound are the two Selznick films. Those are also both out in Blu-ray. Those have been out for a while.
2: Strangers on a, Strangers on a Train.
1: Which came out a few weeks ago. Warner Brothers.
2: Which is oh, great. Yeah. Dial Dial M. That was never my favorite. Also out from a
1: few weeks ago. So, so far, all of these other films that you've mentioned are already out on Blu-ray.
2: Yes. Yes. catch a thief? Not out. Now, what's that about?
1: I don't know. It's a Cary Grant thing.
2: So, a lot of this stuff, like you're talking like Family Plot, 76, uh, Frenzy, 72, Topaz, 69, Torn Curtain, 69, Marnie, 64, Bird, 63, Psycho, 60. Um, You know, a lot of the ones on this set are 58 and later. Yes,
1: I take it back. To Catch a Thief it is out on Blu-ray, oh, Paramount earlier this this yeah. year. Yeah.
2: So if you were to get this fifteen,
1: yeah, I'd forgotten. We we actually talked about that, and that it right? just blew right past me. Yeah.
2: Now, when it comes to his, his British stuff, you know, that's now you get into Sabotage, Secret Agent, Thirty Nine Steps, the original yeah. Man Who Knew Too Much, because yeah. he, he made that film twice. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is not the British stuff. This is the American we studio get the, we stuff. We get
1: the Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and yes. and uh, I, 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 I I'm accuse, accused. Is it what, what's the one? What's the the Montgomery Clift one. Where he's the priest. Uh,
2: um, no, it's called um, uh, I Confess.
1: I Confess. That's the one,
2: yeah. Um, so anyway, so with this box set and maybe a couple of little ones to buy on the side, like yeah. to catch a thief or yeah. a strangers on a train, uh, you will pretty much get the definitive Hitchcock that Absolutely. you'll ever need in your life.
1: Yeah, but I mean, his golden period is And by is the here. way,
2: his guess. But here's the thing, and we, we double check this. Um, the extras. Yes, all the um, extras intact. yes. I looked at my Psycho Blu-ray, which is now useless, and the extras that are on the Psycho Blu-ray on the box set—they are identical. I mean, yeah. there really is no excuse not no. to port those over. Nope. Anyway, no. Anyway, so it, Alfred Hitchcock box set must buy. Buy it now.
1: It's brilliant. You gotta, you gotta get the whole thing. Gotta get every. Just it's you, you'll hours and hours and hours of joy and entertainment. I had a Hitchcock class in college. You know. Uh,
2: okay, what? never mind.
1: <laughs> All right, carry on. So let's uh, we're gonna have we have some more uh, yeah. classic films that we're gonna be getting do to I a have little letters bit.
2: Today? We 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 never do letters anymore.
1: Well, yeah, we do. Uh, we're going to get to some. You know, we we, we could do. We have a vox box. Really called bluff on that, didn't I? What do we do? We have a vox box that we've been holding on to for a couple of weeks. Well, not yet. Do you want to do it now? No,
2: I don't know. What do you, we, what what, uh, what are we talking about? Well,
1: why don't we do this? Why don't we end the show with the vox box and then uh, you want
2: to do some letters right now and then carry on on the on the new movies? So letters, new movies, and then vox box. Is that the rundown?
1: That's I guess the rundown. I might we might try to squeeze some British TV in there if I can distract you long enough.
2: <laughs> Fine. All right. Listener mail. Why do you print those out?
1: So that I can make it sound like I actually have physical mail. You
2: realize that every show is done with the help of your laptop. Yes, I know. Where, your, where these letters should be. I know, they are. But, but there's something about
1: paper. Yeah, it just feels more like you know, like Letterman holding the, uh, the listener mail. But this the mail is not, not a desk
2: bit from Letterman. I know, whatever.
1: All right. Uh, Anthony Mateus, I guess is how you pronounce his name, uh, said, love the show, love, love the show. I uh, just want to let you know on, your, on a recent show you began talking about Luis Guzman in How to Make it in America. Mark offhandedly commented that he lives in a farm in North Carolina. I am from a very small northeastern Vermont town. Uh, about 35 miles from the Canadian border a few years ago, I happened upon Mr. Guzman at the local ski resort picking up his kids. Needless to say, I couldn't believe my eyes. My brother, who is a physical therapist, told me he's been living, indeed, on a farm in the kingdom. He has about eight children, not four, most of them adopted from all walks of life, and I thought I couldn't love this man any more. I've bumped into him from time, time to time again. The funniest, most trippy thing was hearing him talk to his kids when he was picking them up from skiing. Here's a man who notoriously plays seedy characters, often villains, yelling to his daughter, Okay, honey, get your jacket on. (laughs) It's chili out. (laughs) He's the best. Luis Guzman is the best.
2: Luis Guzman is one of those guys, those character guys like Sam Rockwell, where just everything he does is just... Priceless.
1: Yeah, I heard a story about Luis Guzmán the other day, but I, I'm I'm not I'm not at liberty to Ooh, share it. Is, is
2: this a, is this a story that makes him look good or makes him look bad?
1: No, no, it's it makes him look good. It's it, well, it doesn't. It makes someone else not look so good. It makes him look good, but I, I'm not at liberty to actually share it. That's the thing about NDAs, isn't it? Uh, and then uh, we had a letter from Eric Altieri, a longtime listener, uh, said, Since the advent of DVD, releasing multiple versions of films has become pretty commonplace, not uh, just with director's cuts available, but things like unrated and extended, which can be found in almost any studio release. Oftentimes, the theatrical version never sees the light of the day. Uh, I started thinking about how this affects how history will remember movies. I remember Wade going off on a rant about how the recent Dances with Wolves release did not contain the original theatrical cut, the Academy Award-winning version, To paraphrase, Uh, some films are lucky to have directors get it, uh, that that get it. Peter Jackson has gone on record as saying that theatrical versions of the films, uh, the Lord of the Rings films, are the ones he prefers, and the extended DVDs are just fan stuff. And then you have something like Blade Runner, where Ridley Scott has been more than clear about his disdain for the theatrical release, preferring the director's cut up until a few years ago at least, with the international cut, and then the final cut available. I believe the same can be said about Dawn of the Dead and the three versions of that film. Finally, we have studios like Disney and filmmakers uh, like George Lucas that can't stop tinkering with their films, releasing version after version. Um, What's your take on this? How do you decide which version of a film to consider the actual or best version of a film? And I think that is a great question. And you had a great answer for him, too. I did? Yes, you did. What did I say? Uh, You said uh, the waters (laughs) are muddy on this. It's (laughs) It's difficult to come up with a definitive answer. Is the theatrical cut of The Magnificent Ambersons really the definitive cut? Of course not. Does a filmmaker proclaim his director's cut of uh, Blu-ray, the official one, because he gets a slice of the Blu-ray revenue and wants to stoke renewed interest in the film? Of course. And then you said that the, uh, the original theatrical release for you is always the, the for, sort of the fundamental work that uh, we evaluate. And I, uh, you know. It's a
0: beautiful letter. Who wrote those wonderful thoughts? You did.
2: No, <laughs> oh, I did? I, I, really? I, it was me? Yes. Oh, I knew that. Yes, you did.
1: No, I, I think I, I really do think that the the theatrical cut, the theatrical release, is is the one that we always have to pay attention to. Now, there are of course films where you can't say that there is a theatrical cut because there have been many cuts. Uh, Lost Horizon, the Frank Capra film, comes to mind, where that thing was it started off being like 150 minutes and then it wound up being like 80 minutes by the time it, it was finally near the end of its run. It just it was cut, 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 cut. Lawrence of Arabia is another one. Um, you know Kubrick cut a number Of his films Based on the first showing Then we've got uh, Like the Lost World the Terrence Malick film Which I saw I don't know Did you see that At the uh, the, the, the press screening?
2: He Lost cut, No I
1: didn't uh, No not, not the Lost World The New World New The World. New World No I didn't he, he cut like 10 minutes From it between the time That they screened it For press and the time They released it For audiences It was bizarre It was weird but And, then, then, they, and but, then he went And turned around And released it As a director's cut anyway
2: Yeah so it, it gets to the it, There has to be some Yeah has to be some what is the work that we judge
1: I, I, the work that we judge is the one that is deemed theatrical
2: but then you whatever say, whatever
1: qualifies for academy award consideration that's the one that has to be dealed, uh, viewed as sort of the official release version if a director wants to say well I didn't like it I fought with the producers you know this is the one I prefer fine but you know I, uh, I think we have to view that as the one that history considers the original release of the film now, Blade Runner is a weird case, um, but you know those, those instances are – and, and Brazil, Brazil is another yeah. case. You know, I mean uh, you know, there, there are – and certainly things like uh, The Double Life of Veronique, which had a different European release and a different American release because Harvey Weinstein got involved and Kieslowski was all over it. He said, why don't we have a different release for every country? <laughs> you know, he, he sort of thought that would be a, a weird little tweak to do. But yeah, um, I think you have to take it case by case, but certainly the theatrical version has to be preserved always.
2: Just tell George Lucas that uh, with Star Wars. Yeah, he's an
1: idiot. Don't like him. Don't like it at all. And uh, And more letters? uh, Yeah, a couple more. And then one from uh, Alex Vasquez uh, says, Wade, just started listening to your show uh, during my workout yesterday. And another good one. Just want to make a correction you may want to bring up. Uh, Mark mentioned that Titanic 1997 came out before on Blu-ray. That is incorrect. The release back on September 10th was the first time it was released on Blu-ray. So... You, uh, Good on you. Ya. Yeah. I, I, I think both of us felt like it, it had been released on Blu-ray before, but I, I guess it hadn't. That is bizarre. Yeah, I could have, could have sworn it was, but, you know, this is how... Look, to, 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 to catch a thief, I thought for sure that that was not on Blu-ray. And now I realize about seven months ago we talked about it. So these things, these things happen. Our minds are... Uh, our minds are, are not sponges. And then uh, longtime listener Nicholas Gordon says, um, just wanted to get your thoughts on the ending of the bridge on the River Kwai. It seems uh, to be a never-ending debate as to whether or not Colonel Nicholson actually, actually meant to fall on the detonator, or is it just a coincidence? Thoughts?
2: Ooh. Well, I don't know, man. I think he just fell on it.
1: You think he just, he, he just fell on it? He wasn't yes. being noble? He wasn't redeeming himself?
2: Well, that that might have been that might have been the effect. But his actual motivation in doing it might be that might be, you know he might not have thought to himself, I'm going to fall on this plunger. And a I final, think, last act of nobility. Do you, do you think that's what it was? I
1: think it is intentionally ambiguous. I think the point is not whether or not he intended to do it. I think the point is to make the audience wonder whether or not he intended to do it. I think it you know it's the it's the right ending, but did it does it redeem him? We don't know. And I think that's that's it's it's one of those wonderful sort of Question mark well, ending it leaves people talking
2: it only, it only redeems him If you think he did it On purpose
1: I think it's very telling That before he falls on it He tries to stand at attention He, he sort of You know there, There's a moment Where he Just before he stumbles He's trying to be Still a good soldier And uh, you realize He's a good soldier To the day that he dies But is he a good soldier in, in what sense He does realize That he's made an error He says you know What have I done But it's a, it's a, it's a great ending It's one of the all time Great endings of any movie ever that is say? true.
2: And we still can't quite uh, come to a conclusion as to what it means.
1: We can't. And yet but, it is still a great ending. But, Mark, can we come to a conclusion as to what seeking a friend for the end of the world means?
2: Um, it means that Steve Carell can't quite find his post office bearings. Yeah. Ooh, I, I hit the mic. Yes, you did. Yeah, sorry about that. It's okay. Uh, thank you.
1: I won't hold it against you. Yes, you will. Because it's a magic mic.
2: So, oh, I want to talk about that in a second, too. Oh, Anyway, Seeking a Friend uh, for the Other World. It's about, it's with uh, Steve Carell and uh, Kieran Knightley. set, um, you know, whatever, in the not too distant future, I guess. Uh, humanity is uh, on its last days, and, uh, you know, what happens? What happens? You know what? You've got a few more days to find love before the world comes to an end. What's going to happen? And um, do I like this film? Do I like this film? You know what? It was very sweet, and uh, I was very sincere. And uh, it's pretty promising for the director who I'd never heard of. I think this might be her first film, and uh, you know, I just did, it did. I didn't really care for them much as a couple. I think it's probably my problem with it. They didn't really match up to me as a couple. I don't know what you think about that, Wade. I'm really lukewarm on this. Film. I, you know, it didn't do um, much for me.
1: the the uh, look. It's it wants to it wants to have it both ways is the problem. Um, it. it uh, it, it, there are so many movies that try to find poignancy in some kind of a, a near apocalyptic scenario. You know, the world's going to end, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, I, it just doesn't. Uh, it doesn't really
2: work. Well, and- what, what I wouldn't do is I, I would not go into this thinking it's going to be a full blown. Steve Carell comedy.
1: Don McKellar, the amazing Canadian talent, who really has not directed anything substantially great in a while, but uh, he was a you know, co-writer of The uh, the Red Violin, and he wrote and directed the film in 98. He's a great actor, by the way, too. He's also in The Red Violin. Uh, Don McKellar uh, wrote and directed a film in uh, 98 called Last Night, which is a sensational film. And it stars, he stars in it along with Sandra Oh, the wonderful Sandra Oh of uh, Grey's Anatomy and... Uh, Sideways, Oscar nominee for Sideways. And Last Night is a wonderful, poignant movie about two people who just happen to, to bump into each other on the, the day, the night that the Earth is going to be destroyed. And You don't know why it's going to be destroyed. You just know that it is. And everybody is kind of doing whatever it is that you decide to do when you figure everything is just going to come to a, a, you know, a cataclysmic end. I think this film tries to do that same thing, but it wants to be... In a rom-com way. In a rom-com way, and that's the problem. I don't think you can do that
2: yes i mean it's, it's trying uh, to have it two ways well you know what it is i mean can you be saccharine and whimsical in a post-apocalyptic uh, setting
1: I'm, I'm not sure you can
2: and i don't know that you can i don't think you can but you know what uh as as a rental i don't think you will waste your time you'll be like man, yeah. nah, that's pretty good and of course Pat oswalt's in it and that's always good yeah there you go we love Pat oswalt
1: um and then we've got magic mike And Magic Mike is out here on a uh, Blu-ray, DVD, Ultraviolet combo pack. i got to say, you know, Ultraviolet, everything has the Ultraviolet now, and I know a lot of people are signing up for it, and I know they're all kind of touting, oh my gosh, 850 million people have signed up on Ultraviolet. But the question ultimately is going to be how many people will use it. it. Really, that's the question. How many people are out there every day... In a, a hotel somewhere Or with their iPad or something saying Oh crap, I really want to watch that movie That I just registered for uh, on Ultraviolet the other day I think you now I'm going to log on to you know, the, uh, the, the, the Universal site And I'm going to download it, it just, it's, The whole thing is so unwieldy And so user unfriendly Right now and so poorly thought out I, I just I think people might be signing up for it Without actually having any intention of using it <coughs> Gesundheit Gesundheit <laughs> We're professional here. That's why we have sneeze buttons. We do? <laughs> we, no,
2: we do <laughs> We do. I didn't press mine. It's okay. So, uh, the, okay, Magic Mike was supposed to, you know, I, I, Magic Mike was supposed to be kind of a throwaway film. It I mean, was, really, it was not Soder, supposed to be.
1: Well, it wound up being kind of a little mini hit. You know, yeah. Soderbergh Soderberg, um, wanted this to, I guess, be one of his commercial turnaround films, you know, where he, he he wasn't able to get that Cleopatra musical off the ground, which doesn't make sense to me at all. That was just the strangest obsession ever. And, you know, Beyonce playing Cleopatra in a musical. Are, I What? Sorry. And no one wanted to give him, you know, the $120 million that he said it was going to cost because he just kind of he made, did. well, he yeah. made Che, you know, that two-part, four-hour thing, and that tanked. So uh, he goes and he makes a movie about male strippers. And you know what? It's pretty good. It's actually really entertaining, and it's, it's, it's not a movie that we haven't seen before. Uh, Matthew McConaughey plays a minor role in it, frankly. He's the, the, kind of the, the club, the guy who runs the club. It's Channing Tatum's movie, and Channing Tatum used to be actually a male stripper. Uh, it's a beefcake movie. Women will love it, but ultimately, it's just, it's, it's kind of, um, it's a little bit, of it's like what showgirls should have been, in a way.
2: Well this isn't this isn't campy in that winking self knowing. But
1: it is about it is about somebody who wants to make a better life for themselves. And we've seen this a million times. It's usually you know, it's a waitress or it's a boxer or whatever. It's somebody who wants to sort of break away from the rut and, and you know, make a proper life for themselves and find happiness. It's not a new scenario. This movie has been told literally hundreds of times before, but somehow here it feels fresh enough. And Soderbergh has a good cast on his hands. Darn it, Channing Tatum really is turning into a good actor. I never thought I'd say that, but he is.
2: Well, because he's starting to work with good directors. That's the thing. It's like these guys—they just, you know—they—they they, want to be. Yeah. They want to be Taylor Lautner yeah. when you're into that age, and you do some piece of crap film because they're top billed, and now they're an action star, and it winds up being. Very horrible. True. And uh, where's where's Taylor Lautner now? Uh, I don't know. No nowhere. Yeah. You know. And then you get Channing Tatum, who's starting to make some good choices, work with good directors, yep. who are starting to notice that he's talented, and he'll get more work out of it. Yeah. I, I just think that whoever is guiding some of these young actors' careers, I ju- they're, they're they're going for the easy buck, and I agree. while that might benefit the agent uh, in the short term, it will not benefit the talent in the long term.
1: Um, I want to talk for a second about uh, take this waltz. Which take is... this
2: waltz and shove it.
1: Yes, Take This Waltz, which is Sarah Polly's new film. Sarah Polly, wonderful actress, wonderful Canadian actress, uh, who, of course, kind of exploded on the scene as an actress in The Sweet Hereafter, the Adam Agoyan film, and has gone on to actually be a very, very sharp writer-director in her own right. Um, And I think her work has been very, very acute, uh, but a little bit uneven up until this point. But... you know I I have a real gosh I struggle with this film this stars Michelle Williams, Seth Rogen, Luke Kirby and Sarah Silverman the idea here is kind of a a more a less chaste, more modern more artsy and certainly very Canadian version of Brief Encounter if you've ever seen the David Lean film Brief Encounter it's about two people who essentially have an unconsummated um, love affair in a very discreet British way just after a happenstance meeting uh, in this case, Michelle Williams is the woman who has the affair with uh, Luke Kirby. And it's very much a real affair. And uh, Seth Rogen is her husband who kind of takes the, the brunt of it. Um, but the dynamics are the same. It, for some reason, though, the film just feels a little bit too artsy, a little bit too precious and self-obsessed. And I know what Sarah Polly was going for, but it's one of those cases where I think sometimes having a, an actor directing a movie is, uh, is not a good thing because she lets the actors be just a touch too indulgent. And I have to say, there are pros and cons to this. I am a little bit disturbed. No, I'll rephrase that. I am deeply disturbed that I have seen uh, as much of Sarah Silverman's naked body as I now have thanks to this movie. Um, not that Sarah Silverman is unattractive, but you know what? I don't know. I just didn't... Like, did I ever really want to see Carol Burnett naked? Yeah,
2: I did. Did you? Oh, yeah. Betty White, Carol Burnett.
1: If you're a funny lady, I don't know that I, need, I really want to see you naked. Even if you're attractive, I just don't know that that really is is a must, uh, is on my checklist. That's not on the bucket list. So Sarah Silverman pretty much lets it all hang out in this movie. If that's a, if that's a selling point for you, by all means, go and uh, check out Take This Waltz on Blu-ray. Beautifully shot, really beautifully shot. If you're going to watch it, you've got to watch it on the Blu-ray.
2: Uh, Wade, uh, Tyler Perry, we have talked about Tyler Perry before and that we respect his business acumen. But uh, his movies are terrible. And uh, Medea's Witness Protection is uh, the latest. At least I think it is. At least I hope it is. The latest of the Medea films. We've lost track. We've lost track. Uh, no, He's it,
1: out in Alex Cross right now, by the way. Oh, that's Just,
2: right. Yeah. Where he's trying to turn it around and be a dream. Yeah. You, you've got to be kidding. I, mean, you, I you, know. You can't spend 15 years dressed and drag and then expect that the audience to accept action, you as an action like hero. Super, are you kidding me? Oh, my God. Anyway, the only funny scene in this film is the uh, scene in the airport where he's uh, frisked by the security guard, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the transportation, uh, uh, you know, the TSA agent. And the reason I say that is because, A, it's funny, and, B, it was played by a friend of mine, Shane Anderson, who's really, really super funny, and it's the only funny scene in the film. In fact, it's so funny that they made it one of the thumbnails on the box, the <laughs> scene where he's being interrogated by the TSA guy. That's
1: pretty that's great. That's my buddy
2: Shane, and yeah, Shane is nice. hilarious, and it's the funniest scene in the film. Otherwise, the film is totally, completely Unbelievably forgettable. Medea's uh, witness protection. Um, it didn't do all that well, at least compared to some of his other films. And uh, I know that Medea is ha- has, has a huge hit with a certain audience. And God love him. You know, nothing wrong with that. But I just think that this guy needs to move on. And he can't really move on in the 180-degree in the way Yeah, he tried in Alex Cross. Yeah. He needs, like, that interim movie. You know? Yeah. Where maybe it's a comedy that's not so ridiculous. And then maybe it's a James Brooksian drama where there's some comedy and some drama. And then he can go off and do something that's kind of way out there. But right now, the audience cannot accept such a left turn from him. Anyway, Medea's Witness Protection is uh, uh, terrible. Ah, uh, Medea. Uh, Wade, also, uh, we have The Secret of the Wings. Now. The oh,
1: this is the, 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 the Tinkerbell sequel thing or spin off or whatever the hell it is. Yes, this oh. is
2: all about Tinkerbell. And uh, you didn't realize that Tinkerbell had a backstory, did you? <laughs> she she doesn't. T- they made one up. Uh, he, he grew up in the uh, Cabrini-Green projects in Los <laughs> Angeles, and then he wound up in... Uh, Cabri- yeah, Cabrini-Green
1: yeah. is ah, like ah, ah. in Chicago, oh, isn't I know it? Where that is. Okay. I
2: don't even know how I came up with Cabrini-Green. Neither do
1: I. It's a very strange <laughs> reference. <laughs>
2: Anyway, so it's for the girls, so it's all about uh, sisterhood and uh, family and blah, blah, blah. Look, it, it moves fast. Uh, it, it looks nice. Um, you know, d- does Tinkerbell as a character deserve her own movie? Uh, of course not, especially if it's computer stuff and not hand-drawn. I don't really like this uh, computer stuff, especially with Tinkerbell. Um, anyway, so even for the kids, this is not that great, although, of course, with the Disney, uh, with the Disney label, kids are going to want to see it. Uh, not a great film, uh, but it is your, your first and hopefully only trip to Pixie Hollow. The Blu-ray does have another, uh, has a short on it, which is uh, no better or worse than the movie. And uh, there's a couple games on it. Uh, there's a bunch of, a couple bonus features. All in all, I think you're better off just going ahead and watching and re-watching maybe Cinderella or Snow White. Okay. Or Lady and the Tramp. Or even one of the Pixar films. Totally. Than you are in watching The Secret of the Wings.
1: All right. I've got a couple of films here. Both of Hang them. On, wait. Oh, jeez. Uh-huh. What is up with your sinuses today? You're, you're 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 dragging our already low threshold of professionalism all the way into the gutter. Thank you. Do you want to? Do you wanna, Why don't we just do the show naked? Let's just uh, let's just do a that. Much. All right. Um, as Mark has now exited to go do something with his sinuses, um, I'm going to mention a couple of Salma Hayek films that we have this week. We got two actually, and uh, she completely different characters. Salma Hayek is becoming a much much sharper actress as she gets older. I got to tell you. Um, The first one is Americano, in which she plays uh, a stripper. And in the other one, Savages, the Oliver Stone film, she plays a drug kingpin. But Savages, uh, actually, or I'm sorry, Americano, has the more substantial role for her, I think. Um, not necessarily more in screen time, but probably more for her to do as an actress. And uh, it's a, this is a really interesting film from Mathieu Demi, who is the son of Agnes Varda and Jacques Demy, both brilliant filmmakers. And uh, he stars in the film. He wrote it. He directed it. And uh, it, all, it also features Chiara Mastroianni as his girlfriend, who, of course, is the daughter of Marcello Mastroianni and... Mark? You just came um, and sat George down Lucas. Again? Oh jeez. Gave you a chance to be smart. You you bonked it. No, Catherine Deneuve. So um, you know, two legendary uh Superstar children offspring from legendary European filmmakers and actors. Um, the film is basically a very simple kind of I-need-to-get-to-the-roots-of-my-roots story. Uh, Demi plays a guy who uh, lost his mother, and he wants to kind of unravel the, uh, the, the sort of mysterious, enigmatic story of, of her life and how it relates to him. And he comes to California um, and then winds up, you know, going through a whole series of adventures that wind up taking him to uh, Tijuana, where he meets up with... Uh, Salma Hayek working in this nasty disgusting little Tijuana club I hit the mic That's okay. Uh, but you know what it's a very sensitively made film is it a great film no is he, does he show flashes of being as talented as his parents I think probably and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very very um, it's an engaging film that I think is a nice uh, intro for his talent and you remember he actually showed up not too long ago at one of our Lafka dinners if you remember he accepted uh, an award on behalf of his mom I think
2: that is true. You it, was, that? it was very memorable. Very nice
1: guy. Very sweet guy. Yep. So uh, anyway, that's a movie from Matteo Demi, Americano, from MPI, and then the other Salma Hayek film is Savages, the Oliver Stone film, which is a little bit like uh, you know Tequila Sunrise on crack or something. It, uh, it this is just a, a strange, weird, misguided misfire of a movie, and the idea here is that you've got Taylor Kitsch, Blake Lively, and Aaron Johnson is this kind of you know, love triangle trio like they love each other, and she'll sleep with both of them, and they're best friends, and they kind of don't care because they're all you know they're like sophisticated drug dealer guys. They dropped out of college to you know run a drug empire, and now the Mexicans want in, and they kidnap Blake Lively, and uh, somehow John Travolta as a corrupt DEA agent factors into this, and Benicio del Toro is like the the, the hitman who works for. Uh, uh, for Salma Hayek and then Salma Hayek has has a daughter and there's a weird mother-daughter relationship that she has with Blake Lively when she's her captive and all of this makes for this very strange mash of violence and drugs and sex and family relationships. I don't get it. I I, I thought Stone did a much better job with his screenplay for Scarface a million years ago. Uh, this is stylish but it just feels like he's, I don't know, it feels old hat, feels like he's pulling his punches. Mark?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think he's kind of lost his way a little bit. yeah. You know, it, it's you know what it is. It's almost like the anger. <clears throat> I think he spent so many years being angry yeah. that now that anger is sort of on autopilot. You know, it's like this is really this like when yeah. it, when it was Vietnam or when it was uh, whatever It was capitalism or what it was Wall Street. You know, even even World Trade Center, which was not an angry film, mm-hmm. but you felt as if it came from his heart. Yeah, I think I feel that now he's just kind of. I don't know. He's just finding these stories I that, I, I guess, make him go on that anger autopilot that he has now. I and just suppose. Uh, Whatever.
1: I suppose. Well, anyway, we've got some extras on these. Uh, the, uh, the film Americano, both on Blu-ray. The, the Blu-ray of Americano has an interview with Mathieu Demi and a trailer. Not a whole lot. The uh, Blu-ray DVD digital copy ultraviolet combo pack of Savages... You uh, can finally dig your way to some deleted scenes and uh, some making of stuff, which is fine. Not, uh, not you know, mind-boggling. You, you, sort of, you know, it's the usual. So it's, uh, I guess I would recommend uh, both of these as a rental, but Americano is the more interesting film.
2: That's telling him, Wade. You know, when the campaign came out, I thought to myself, uh, this feels like a minor Will Ferrell film. Kind of in like the other guy's way.
1: I really, I honestly thought if this thing is the least bit funny, it's going to take off. It's just going to be able to get all kinds of traction out of the election year. But it's turned into such a mean, nasty, paranoid, bitter, divisive election year, which I know is sort of like saying it's an election year. Um, I I guess people just weren't into wanting to laugh at it.
2: Well, the, the, the problem is that this film has very little political content or satire in it. I mean, really, the, Will Ferrell and, and Zach Galifianakis, they, they played two just clueless candidates who do everything they can to one-up each other and get elected. I mean, that's really all they're doing. There's not much it's, actual uh, political satire in it. Yeah. I mean, I kind of wish there was because then it would be great. So it's not a sharp satire. What I will say about it is that you, you're watching this film, and as it keeps rolling and you find yourself laughing, you're like, you know what? Somehow, this movie is funny. It's, it's a little like the other guy's. Um, the Other Guys was another film that felt like it'd be like that in-between Feral film where you're watching it and you're thinking, you know what? This feels like a minor Feral film or maybe one that wants to be funnier than it is. But in the aggregate, I'm laughing kind of hard. So even though it's not Anchorman or it's not Talladega Nights or it's one of those sorts of films that we all just absolutely just love with that reservation, this is one of those films that even though it's not what we might want it to be, which is a sharp political satire, it is ultimately for reasons of its own for other reasons it is funny i mean i just don't know what to say i thought yeah. i thought it was kind of funny
1: it's it's kind of funny but it's not like brilliantly funny it, it is not
2: well because again it's it's it this is the least political yeah. political comedy you'll ever see
1: which is which is how the development process at the studios has now drained everything of any kind of bite
2: yes because you're afraid that because it's a political rear yeah. if you, if if one's a republican and makes jokes about uh, this and the other's a liberal and they make jokes about that yeah you, you'll turn off a certain segment of the audience and we can't afford to sink, you know, $50 million into a comedy and have it alienate the, any part yep. of the audience. And that's how these movies get made.
1: Uh, you know, a lot of you on the Facebook page have already commented on seeing "Safety Not Guaranteed," which uh, recently came out on Blu-ray and on DVD. We've got both the Blu-ray and the DVD here in front of us. I got to say, it's a charming movie, a surprisingly charming movie. I don't know if any of our colleagues will remember this when awards time comes around, but um, you know, the whole idea of this movie. Do you know the origin of this? Do you know how "Safety Not Guaranteed" kind of came to to happen?
2: Well, yeah, it was it was in a uh, uh, about. 15 years ago A message in a bottle No There was like A little piece of paper no. And it said I want to do a movie no. About a supermarket clerk no. Who thinks he solved uh, a Time travel No And he put it in a bottle And put a cork in it, threw it into the ocean And then 15 years later This this writer Derek Connolly He found the message In a bottle He's like There's no way This guy will ever Be able to track this down I don't know who this guy is It was a message in a bottle it Could be sent from anywhere I'm going to write this movie And then it winds up Being safety not guaranteed is no. that not, is, that's
1: not the story? That's not the story. Oh. The, story, the story. But that's a good one. Good try. Nice <laughs> nice elaborate way to waste a couple of precious minutes on the podcast. Um No, the, the true story is that when Jay Leno on the Tonight Show was doing one of his regular weekly Monday night headline segments, it actually um it actually, they, one of them was a classified ad for saying, I, I've i traveled uh, back in time and I need somebody to come with me this time and, you know, you'll get paid or whatever. I mean, it was a classified ad saying, I need somebody to be my time travel companion. And uh, they they took that and ran with it and made a movie out of it. And uh, sure enough, this is the movie. And I got to tell you, it's, they did a really charming job. The uh, The idea of... Because it's not really about time travel. It's not really about anything science fiction related. It's about eccentricity and, you know, how people connect and the power of faith and dreams and reality and all of this kind of stuff. It's very much a, kind of an existential exploration of human relationships. And I thought that was a really smart thing to do with, with a, a premise that could very easily have just gone completely off the rails, and much as I normally can't stand any of the Duplass people, uh, not as filmmakers or as actors, Mark Duplass really good here, really oh, good. This is, is, you Duplass know what? Probably. It's a good role for him. He he just totally nails it, and Aubrey Plaza is just one of the one of the real pleasures of any uh, any movie anywhere. She she is just such a cool wonderful deadpan actress. I thoroughly enjoy watching her do absolutely anything. So uh, on television and movies, more Aubrey Plaza, please. And don't try to stretch too much, because that deadpan thing that she does, thoroughly enjoyable. absolutely think she's just uh, delightful as all hell. Uh,
2: I think she's on her way. She's didn't, uh, she did uh, Funny People. Uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World and uh, she's got another couple films coming up but uh, yeah, she could definitely, a couple good choices she's on her way.
1: Absolutely and uh, we're going to hit through a few classic movies now, Uh, we've got a ton of classic movies here, we're just going to pick a few to uh, try and wind down the show before our Vox Box Not yet, not yet. Uh, sorry. Uh, we have a couple from the Warner Archive collection, which you can, uh, these are all DVD-Rs. You can find out more at warnerarchive.com. Uh, the first one is Lily, which is the classic uh, Leslie Caron film, uh, just a, one of the most wonderful musicals ever made, uh, also starring Mel Ferrer and Jean-Pierre Aumont. This is uh, beautifully directed by Charles Walters. And this you know you've heard the song hi lily hi low just that's this is this is the movie it comes from six academy award nominations a sheer joy including a zsa, zsa gabor performance that is uh, to be remembered and then we also have red dust with clark gable and gene harlow uh gene harlow was so blonde she was blonde in black and white you just gotta gotta love that um this is a this is a good film uh, it takes place on a rubber plantation in Indochina in the you know directed by Victor Fleming who of course did uh, gone with the wind and uh, and um, the wizard of oz or substantial portions of both uh, never really equaled either of those 1939 classics um, this is a minor film in his uh, his repertoire. It is a kind of a minor film in Gable's repertoire. It's a little bit more of a major film for uh, Gene Harlow. But it uh, the thing is, movies from this period, when they take place in exotic locales, you, you can just tell that it's a backdrop, uh, that it's a backlot. You just know. Everything about it screams backlot. Uh, but, you know, that being said, uh, everybody kind of gives it their all, and it does have that sheen, that classic Hollywood sheen, so you can't fault it too much.
2: That is true, Wade. Uh, Fritz Lang, or Fritz Lang. Wade would probably say Fritz Lang. Wouldn't you, Wade? Yes,
1: I would. I would say Fritz Lang.
2: Well, I say Fritz Lang because I'm a okay. dumb American.
1: Okay. Potato, that's, potato.
2: Let's <laughs> call the whole thing off. Anyway, Fritz, uh, Fritz Lang was uh, one of the great uh, directors of all time. He, of course, uh, directed uh, Metropolis, uh, of course, made M, and before he came to uh, uh, Hollywood and had a decent Hollywood career. But before all of that, uh, we're talking the uh, kind of right after World War One, uh, he made a couple movies that have been uh, collected by the good folks at Kino. We love Kino. The Good Folks at Kino called Fritz Lang's uh, the Early works. This is Harakiri, The Wandering Shadow and Four Around the Women, uh, Four Around the Woman. Now this these uh, films uh, I don't know how often or if ever these films have been uh, projected in the United States. But uh, they did a good job with the with the DVD. These are uh, were remastered from 35 millimeter elements uh, that have been preserved, uh, preserved pretty well. May I add? And uh, Harakiri is from uh, 1919, and it's based on Madame Butterfly. So if you're familiar with Madame Butterfly, you'll enjoy uh, Harakiri. And uh, The Wandering Shadow is a uh, story about a woman who um, uh, she suffers through the sex scandal, so she goes into the Bavarian Alps to to find some solitude, and of course, she never can. And from 1921, we have four around uh, The Woman, uh, which is, to me, the least interesting of the uh, three. I kind of like Harry Carey, only because A the oldest, and B, I like Madame Butterfly. But um, anyway, Fritz Lang, if, if you're not familiar with Fritz Lang uh, and his work, this may not be the best place to start. I would obviously start with M and Metropolis, and he did a lot of great uh, American films, too. You yeah, well, uh, know, The Big Heat? Is a great Fritz which Lang we, film we
1: talked about a couple of months ago. You, you know what else is a great Fritz Lang film? If the, you
2: Doctor Mabuse.
1: Well, if you've got about yeah, if you've got about four and a half five hours lying around, uh, you could watch the other thing that I'm going to talk about right now, which is the new special edition of Fritz Lang's Die Nibelungen. Uh, Die Nibelungen, if you're familiar with Wagner, is that giant, massive, epic uh, German or Germanic tale that roughly kind of uh, is a little bit like the Achilles story in in uh, Greco-Roman mythology. Um, the Nibelungen is the, you know, the the big the big German epic. It's about Siegfried and the, you know the blood of the dragon and uh, Siegfried's, you know, he didn't have an Achilles heel, he had a Siegfried's shoulder and there's all this stuff. But if, you know, I grew up half German and hearing this kind of stuff constantly, and it's it's the one thing that they have that, that is a little bit like uh, classic mythological lore, and they hammer it into you. So that being said, uh, this is not Fritz Lang's greatest work, but it's very impressive. And it's two films, Siegfried and Kreimhild's Revenge, which each are, you know, well over two hours. And uh, so you're, you're about four and a half, five hours for the complete thing. This is on Blu-ray and on DVD. The uh, Blu-ray is absolutely the way to go. The, uh, the, the, the restoration here from uh, a, a 35 millimeter archival materials is just fantastic. Brand new, just done. This is as beautiful as you will ever see this film. And you're unlikely really to see this ever projected because it's just too, it's too long, it's too huge, it's too all-involved. But uh, some great extras here as well, uh, including the 68-minute um, documentary The Legacy of Dniebelungen, Uh, which goes all the way from the making of the film through the restoration of it. Really, really uh, good stuff. So um, not for everybody, but for silent film buffs and Fritz Long buffs, it is a must-see. And then lastly, uh, obviously we can't let Stanley Kubrick's fear and desire go by, even though we'd probably like to. Mark and I both adore Kubrick. Of course, we revere Kubrick. There's a fantastic Kubrick exhibit that has just finally come here to the L.A. County Museum of Art, which we've got to go see. Over a 1,000 artifacts from Kubrick's garage.
2: Now, How I cool work, is
1: that? They emptied out Kubrick's garage, so you can like see his old uh, spin cycle, his barbells. <laughs> um, I,
2: I actually work across the street a, from a, that museum. A tube of
1: toothpaste yes. that uh, he didn't finish up. Yeah, Good job.
2: I actually work across the street from yeah. that museum, and, I, and although at the time I walked over there, it hadn't opened yet, they do show at the front, before yeah. you walk into the exhibit, one of his director's chairs. Awesome. And e- even looking at a director's chair that had like it has on on either side of the director's chair there's there are these two wooden little Ooh, little holes yeah. where he, he can put a script in or he can put papers nice. in and it says Stanley Kubrick on
1: it. I want to sit in that. Well, um, we're talking about Fear and Desire way, here. You can't sit in that. No?
2: It's, it's in this plastic box. This yeah, just box. watch. You watch me. You <laughs> get arrested. Um, Kubrick's
1: Fear and Desire, I never thought this would ever happen. It's out from Kino on Blu-ray and on DVD. Um, this is the film Kubrick basically tried to acquire and destroy. If he had had his way, no one would ever have had a chance to see this again. It would have been just d- d- burned in a fire and, and torched and the every last vestige of it would have been mutilated um, it's a war film it's a film he made when he really didn't know what he was doing and he somehow threw together a, a skeleton crew of you know illegal immigrants and who held like a boom and, and helped him kind of uh, set up lighting and then he got a young actor named Paul Mazursky who really had never done anything before and was still in drama school at the time and they went and made this kind of bizarre existential war movie that takes place in some nameless country and it involves you know some very um, I'd say rather amateurish It's great uh, photography know, But know. some amateurish dramatic devices I
2: know, you know, Wade, Wade and I saw this projected And at the we time did. it was a big deal to see this projected And we could not believe how lucky we were yep. And when it was over We kind of looked at each other and said, you know what
1: Yeah, probably <laughs> should have burned it
2: It <laughs> really, is not great <laughs> It's really. Look, but it, you
1: know it, what, he put it together very quickly thereafter He really became Stanley Kubrick
2: Well, you know, there are some little pieces of it Where you get a sense that Kubrick is starting to develop. He's his starting style. to become that guy. He's yeah, becoming that guy. At the end, look the look the movie. It was a nothing production. It was bankrolled with like by friends and family. His uncle yep. gave a bunch of money for it. And as Wade said, it was just a bunch of nobodies on the crew. Paul Mazursky, who has made an almost a side career talking about the mm. film, is the only person of any note who was in it.
1: Yeah and well anyway so it is more a curiosity than anything else I mean if you're a Kubrick completist you're going to want to have it and it is a beautiful restoration I don't know if the film warrants it but for, for, for history's sake they did a great job and just so it's not a total loss and people don't watch the movie and go that sucked because uh, it's only an hour long uh, they also include a, uh, a documentary that Kubrick made the same year, which is much better, which is called the seafarers and that also was recently restored by the uh, Museum of modern art and uh, that 's actually quite good so it 's not a total wash, uh, but uh, y- y- you know it, it, i, I got to say fear and desire not the uh, the great film that we all kind of hoped it would be and with that mark it 's time for our vox box <gasps> can I sing the song sing the song. <laughs>
0: Digi gods, Mario Mendes here from Glendale again. Thoughts today? I don't know. Maybe because of Michael Clark Duncan or what have you. I guess are morbidly of death. And I was thinking to myself, which role model in the film industry or, or which hero would I miss the most if they were to pass? And my era is the Spielberg Lucas era. And even though I, hell, I even have a Star Wars tattoo. Honestly, I think the person that I would miss the most would be John Williams, and he's getting up there, but obviously that career, you know, going back to what, like the Cowboys, probably older than that, and the Towering Inferno, and then you can obviously r- rattle off the blockbusters, Jaws, Star Wars, Superman, Raiders, uh, small things like Accidental Tourist, if and when he passes away, to me it would be like, like losing Mozart. I think probably worse, because obviously Mozart is considered classical music, and there's going to be reissuings of his music for years and years, way, way long-lasting us. But John Williams, it's, it's a movie, you know, and then things pass, you know, new Superman movie, they're not going to use his score anymore. Who do you miss, or who will you miss, uh, should they pass away? Uh, that, and the other thing I wanted to throw in was was the limerick. I, I know that the contest ended, but I think our esteemed listeners could have done better. I want to take a shot at one. Let me know what you think. Uh, Hitler named himself Kaiser, which really wasn't for the wiser. He did like to bake and go on J-date. Hell, he should have dated Mark Kaiser. I don't know. Kaiser rhymes with Kaiser, but they're spelled differently, So so work with me. What do you think?
1: Uh, I love the limerick. I think it's very clever. But then again, it's not about me. How do you feel about the limerick?
2: Well, I love it because it's about me. There we go. Well, okay. Here's the pros and cons. The, the cons would be he did rhyme Kaiser with Kaiser. That's okay. I'm fine with that. I don't know. And the other thing is that Hitler didn't name himself the Kaiser. Well, did okay. he name himself the Kaiser? Not really. So that would be a knock against. The knock, The the what he has going in his favor is that he rhymed. Notice how I'm, I'm completely yeah. dissecting every line. Of course you are. Because it's about me. Uh, he did rhyme Kaiser with wiser.
1: I like that. That's good.
2: But he did say J-date, where I'm also on E Harmony. <laughs> but he, I know he couldn't work both in. I understand that. But then again, I'm a loser. So I get that. So I would have to say that uh, had he uh, actually submitted this, mm-hmm. He would have had a very good chance uh, of either win, place, or show. Can't guarantee it, but I'm just saying. So, Mario, next time, a little more punctuality next time, a little more alacrity.
1: We are well over time, so let's answer his question. Uh, Who are we going to miss? I think John Williams. uh, True. I mean, at this point, John Williams is like the lion of film scoring, and it would be a giant loss to think we will never, ever again have another uh, John Williams score. But I'm going to say I have grown up my entire life, every year, With a Woody Allen film You god
2: damn it You said what I was going to say And you are going to be killed I'm going to go And stab (laughs) you right now Because I was going to say Woody Allen You cannot say Woody Allen
1: Well I think we both We both feel it's Woody Allen I mean truly I I can't think of anyone else Whose absence will be felt More profoundly Because Woody Allen Has been a staple For anybody Who has been going to the movies Regularly since the late 60s And uh, I
2: do not accept that answer because it was my answer. Okay, fine. You got to say it first.
1: Okay, but but yeah, but it's true. I mean, well, I, I, what would a year be on like a year without a Woody Allen movie? Would be would be like a year that's not even a year.
2: It's it's not just that. What we, when you get into Woody Allen, uh, Martin Scorsese, you know, you get some of these directors who are part of the Hollywood. They made the films that that triggered our love of films Yes. The, you know the Raging Bulls, the Taxi Drivers, the Manhattans, the Annie Halls. These are the films that actuated our love of films. Yeah, and they are part of an old school Hollywood style that once they either retire or die, who are we left with? But I agree. Maybe we're left with Michael Bay.
1: I agree. you. Well, I mean, look, look, we've lost we've lost Sidney Pollock. We've we've lost Sidney Lumet. We've lost a lot of the giants from that generation. Um, you know, it, it, Woody Allen really is the one that, that it sort of stands as the icon for a lot of us. And um, I, I, I don't know what I'll do the day that he's not around anymore. It'll be all over.
2: I can't believe he said Woody Allen.
1: Mario, thank you. Great question. And for the rest of you, please send in your uh, your listener mail. Send us your Vox boxes especially. We need more Vox boxes. We uh, we really love them. It's a, it's a great feature. Email us at gods at digigods.com. Facebook page. Huh? Go to the
2: Facebook page, yeah, too. Go to the
1: Facebook page. Contribute on the Facebook page as well. We need a lot of people on the Facebook page. We'll see you next week.